Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we continue our consideration of First Peter. We are still in the opening verses of First Peter. There is so much packed into the first two verses. And so my sermon text this evening is First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So friends, let us hear with reverence and awe the Word of our God. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in the word this evening. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, indeed we would pray that your grace and your peace would be multiplied to us this evening by the work of your Holy Spirit working through this word. We thank you, God, for the Scriptures, and we thank you for the comfort that the Scriptures offer to us, your people. We would ask, Heavenly Father, that you would open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your Word. We ask that you would encourage us and strengthen us, comfort us, challenge us, build us up in our most holy faith. And we pray that these truths would find a lodging place in our souls this evening. May this portion of Scripture be to us indeed food for our souls. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, set a guard over my lips, O Lord. Grant unto me, your unworthy servant, the grace to declare your word with clarity and power and with the assistance of your Holy Spirit for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ and the edification of your people and the salvation of the lost. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, and all of God's people said, Amen. Friends, you may be seated. Title my sermon this evening is Sprinkling by the Blood of Jesus Christ. And there's just two key words to listen for this evening, the words sprinkling and blood. Well, dear friends, the Apostle Peter wrote 1 Peter to Christians in Asia Minor who were facing the real possibility of severe persecution for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter's main reasons for writing this letter, this epistle, included inspiring hope in the face of hardship and providing encouragement to these harassed believers. Since Peter is seeking to encourage these believers and to fortify their faith and their hope in the face of hardship, Peter begins this letter by reminding them of their true Identity in Christ. Notice he doesn't begin by reminding them of their duties or by preaching law to them. He doesn't start out that way. He starts out reminding them of their identity in Christ. So Peter begins by addressing these believers as elect exiles of the dispersion or other translations. For example, the New King James Version translates it pilgrims of the dispersion. The NIV translates it as strangers in the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, like all followers of Jesus, 
We, too, are pilgrims of the dispersion. We are elect exiles of the dispersion. By reminding us of this truth, the Holy Spirit, through Peter the Apostle, points the eyes of our faith heavenward. He is setting our sights on our true home, our eternal home. And this hope purifies our souls and it gives us strength to press on through the difficulties that we face in this present life. Peter also reminds his readers that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, as we see in verses 1 and 2. And as we've learned in recent weeks, this means that we believers have been loved with the everlasting, sovereign, saving love of God. A love that has chosen us in Christ from before the creation of the universe. A love which will therefore keep us secure even until the end. What an awesome thought that even before God spoke the universe into existence, brothers and sisters, He had you and me in mind. And He intended, uh, He set His eternal saving love upon us in Christ. What this means is that our Heavenly Father, again, will preserve us through our trials and persecutions, and He will enable us to persevere by His sovereign grace. And this is something that Peter's original readers desperately needed to hear. Peter then goes on to remind his readers that they have been sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, the obedience that Peter is speaking of here, I don't believe he's speaking specifically of obedience to God's law, although striving after pursuing obedience to the law is certainly the fruit of of, uh, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. But by God's sovereign grace, what this is talking about is being renewed by the Spirit to obey the gospel call. By God's sovereign grace, we have been born again. We've been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, which has enabled us to obey the call of the gospel by believing in Christ as our Savior and by repenting of our sins. This initial obedience to the gospel call of repentance and faith, of course, leads to a lifetime of walking after a new obedience, a lifetime of daily renewed repentance and faith. But not only are we sanctified by the Spirit for gospel obedience, Peter goes on to say that we are sanctified for obedience and for sprinkling with His blood. Sprinkling with His blood? What's going on here? What's he talking about? It is through this Spirit-wrought, obedient response of faith to the Gospel call that we sinners are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore receive the full benefits of Christ's atoning work on the cross of Calvary. The Holy Spirit applies to us the saving work of Christ the Redeemer. He applies that saving work to the elect by giving them the gift of saving faith. The faith through which we receive the full benefits of Christ's substitutionary atonement. But again, what exactly does Peter mean when he talks about being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ? Doesn't sound, sounds kind of gross, right? Sounds kind of gory. What's he talking about in this phrase? 
Now, obviously, he's not speaking in a, in a physical sense. When you believe in Jesus, it, what happens when you believe in Jesus? It doesn't mean that the heavens part and Jesus literally sprinkles his physical blood upon you. Obviously, Peter is using this terminology in a more metaphorical sense, but a very real sense. And that's what we're going to consider uh, for my sermon on this Lord's Day evening. But before we dive into the significance and meaning of what it, what it means to be sprinkled with Christ's blood, let's first of all consider the reason why Christ's blood needed to be shed. Why Christ's blood needed to be shed. It was not optional. Let's go back to the very beginning. Man was created good and in the image of God. But as the Word of God reveals, our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were real historical persons, Adam and Eve chose by their own free will to disobey a direct command of God. You know the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden. By disobeying God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by that act, they declared their independence from God and they rejected His Word. Indeed, they chose the lying words of the serpent, Satan, over God's true and trustworthy Word. Now, we need to remember that Adam was appointed by God to be the covenant head and representative of the human race. The representative principle is strong in the Scriptures. And since Adam represented the entire human race as the initial covenant head and representative, when he sinned, we sinned in covenantal solidarity with him. And that is why we are born with a sin nature. Brothers and sisters, let me make it clear. You and I are not sinners because God created us sinful. Such a thought is utterly blasphemous. God is a good God. If God created us with an evil nature, then God Himself would be evil. No, He created us good and in His image. Well, how then did we inherit? How did we get a sin nature? Well, we didn't get it from God. We inherited it from Adam, our covenant head and representative. And that is why we were born with a sin nature. The Bible says that because of our fall in Adam, we are all by nature and by choice, by fallen nature and by choice, sinners, rebels against our Creator, traitors guilty of committing cosmic treason against the infinite divine majesty. Now, because the true and living God is infinitely holy and just, His holy and just character demands that sin be punished. Because we have sinned against the infinite holiness of the infinite Creator God, we therefore deserve infinite punishment for our sins. And some would say, well, can't I you know, make up for my sins by my penances, my, my good deeds, my acts of charity? No, friends, you cannot do that. By our own good deeds or religious endeavors, we could never pay the infinite debt of our sin nor earn that perfect everlasting righteousness that we would need in order to serve as our title to heaven. You see, in order to get into heaven, it's not enough to just have your, your sins forgiven. It's not enough to just have the slate wiped clean. That's enough to keep you out of hell. But in order to get into heaven, think about it. Heaven is a perfect place. God is a perfect God. Heaven is a perfect place. 
You and I need a perfect, everlasting righteousness to serve as our title to gain entrance into heaven. And we don't have it in ourselves. And so, this is why we so desperately need a perfect, sinless Savior. A Savior who will not only pay the infinite debt of our sin, but who will also credit to us His perfect, everlasting Righteousness. And that's precisely what Jesus Christ did for those whom he represented as the second or last Adam. My friends, the good news is that out of love for hell-deserving sinners like me and like you, God the Father sent his eternal Son into this world in order to save his people from their sins. That's why he's called Jesus, Yeshua. The word Jesus means the Lord is salvation. And as we're told in Matthew chapter 1, The angel directed Joseph to name him Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. Sin is a big deal to God because God is holy and righteous. Sin is such a serious offense. Because sin is such a serious offense against God, only God has the omnipotent power and grace needed to save fallen humanity from their sins. However, since it was man who sinned against God, God could only save mankind by taking to himself a human nature, body and soul, and by representing fallen man in that human nature. And that is precisely what God did in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the infinite God-man, the Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, God the Son, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity in the Incarnation. He took upon Himself a sinless human nature, body and soul, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is fully God and fully man, true God and true man, united in one divine person. And that is why He can serve as the mediator between God and man. The only saving religion that there is is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because only the gospel of Jesus Christ presents to fallen sinners a perfect, sinless mediator. A mediator who provides not only, excuse me, not only atonement and cleansing from our sins by his precious blood, but a mediator who provides the gift of his righteousness credited to us, received by faith alone. And so because of the obedient life, the atoning death and the glorious resurrection of Christ. The moment you hear the Gospel and the Holy Spirit opens your heart and calls you through the effectual call to trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation from sin. The moment that the Spirit regenerates and converts you, at that moment, your sins are forgiven. The benefits of Christ's shed blood are applied to you and you receive. You are clothed in Christ's perfect everlasting righteousness so that judicially speaking, when God the judge looks at you, he sees not you in your sin. He sees his son. He sees Jesus and Jesus's righteousness. Praise be to God. The long and short of it is, friends, is that Christ needed to shed his blood on the cross because that was the only way that God's elect could be saved from their sins. There was no other way. The God-man had to pay the penalty for sin and had to provide that perfect, everlasting righteousness which is necessary to gain entrance 
into glory. Dear listener, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross of Calvary to cleanse you from your sins? Do you look to Jesus and Jesus alone as your righteousness, your redemption, your sanctification, and your wisdom? Jesus in the gospel offers himself to you. He offers full and free pardon and not only he not only offers to wipe the slate clean, to cleanse you through his blood, to sprinkle you with his blood, he offers to clothe you in his righteousness. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we see the reason why Jesus had to die, why his blood had to be shed. But let's next consider in more detail the significance of Christ's blood. Peter, in opening his first epistle, reminds his readers and therefore reminds us that we have been uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This is one of the blessed, uh, blessed uh, blessings of the, uh, of the gospel. What is the significance of Christ's blood? You know, modernists and liberals and, and rationalist Bible scholars often scoff at the biblical doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. They said, oh, that's just blood and gore religion. And uh, to suggest that it is, in my mind, is the height of arrogance and blasphemy. These folks don't understand the significance of the shedding of blood as it is revealed in the Scriptures. What is the significance of Christ's blood? Well, we need to kind of look at the Old Testament background a little bit. Let us first of all remember the important principle that is revealed in the Scriptures that the life is in the blood. If you are in an accident and a major artery is severed and you bleed out, when, if you have a severe wound and you are swiftly losing blood, as your blood drains from your body, your life drains from your body. The life is in the blood. Let's take a look at Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11. Some of the Old Testament background to this concept of being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Leviticus chapter 10. I'm sorry, Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. And in this passage, the Holy Spirit through Moses instructs the Old Covenant people of God that they are not to eat meat with the blood in it. It says in verse 10, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Either cutting him off, either meaning excommunicate, uh, put them outside the covenant community, or perhaps even this perhaps might even indicate a threat of death. Why is it that eating meat with the blood in it at this particular point in redemptive history carried with it such a severe penalty? Look at verse 11. The Lord explains, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, I've given this blood, For you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
That blood does not belong to you. It belongs on my altar, God is saying to the people. And I provide that blood to make atonement for your souls. So by ingesting the blood instead of offering it on the altar, that was an act, an implicit act of rejecting God's provision of blood atonement. Now, I want you, as we reflect on that passage, notice that God is the one who provides this blood for atonement. The blood is a gift from God, not something that man earns by works or merits. When we say, uh, looking forward and uh, towards uh, the New Testament, the New Covenant, when we say that Jesus Christ poured out his blood on the cross for sinners, we mean that he poured out his very life on the cross in order to redeem us. The blood represents the life. And to say that Jesus gave his blood for us means that he gave up his life for us. He substituted his life on the cross, bearing our curse so that we might receive his blessing, his grace, his forgiveness. So the blood, the life is in the blood. The principle that we read in the Old Testament is that the life is in the blood. Another principle that is revealed in Scripture is that sprinkling with blood was a symbol of cleansing. Sprinkling with blood was a symbol of cleansing. Let's go to another passage in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 14, and let me read verses 1 through 7. Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 7, which contains instructions for what was to be done in the case of lepers uh, in restoring them ritually to the covenant uh, community. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop, and the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live, blood, live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Again, uh, we read that today and we think this is kind of a strange ritual what's going on here. But again, this is meant to anticipate and point us to Jesus Christ. This passage tells us that when a leper had been healed of his leprosy, he was to be sprinkled with the blood of a bird. This ritual was one of the means by which the former leper was ritually cleansed and therefore welcomed back into the life of the worshiping covenant community. Sprinkling with blood, we learn from this passage, therefore, that sprinkling with blood is a symbol of cleansing from sin and impurity. Well, friends, again, as I said, this points us to Christ in the new covenant. And through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, through his precious blood, we believers are cleansed from our sin. Our sin is like a spiritual leprosy. But through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed from that spiritual leprosy and we are welcomed back 
into the covenant people of God. Sprinkling with blood was also a symbol of setting apart or sanctification, consecration, setting apart for service to God. Let's take a look at two very short passages, Exodus 29, 19-21, and then Leviticus 8.30. But let's go back, first of all, to Exodus chapter 29, verses 19-21, through 21, making you uh, skip around in your Bibles this evening as we compare Scripture with Scripture. Exodus 29, 19-21, we read these words. And this was um, instructions that the Lord gave to Moses for the uh, consecration of, of the Aaronic priests. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, a symbol of, of being identified with the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. Holy, set apart, consecrated for the service of God. And then Leviticus 8, verse 30. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 30. Again, uh, dealing with instructions for consecrating Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. It says, Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons' And his son's garments with him. Again, from our 21st century perspective and living as we do under the new covenant, these rituals may seem rather strange. But but these verses, what do they teach us? Well, they indicate that it was through the ritual of sprinkling with blood that Aaron and his sons were consecrated or set apart to their priestly service to the Lord. And you may say, well, that's interesting, Pastor, but we're not priests today, are we? Well, we're not priests like Aaron was, and we're certainly not priests like Jesus is. We don't offer atoning sacrifices. But through the sprinkling of Christ's blood, we Christians are likewise set apart to be a kingdom of priests unto God. And we are indeed called in this priestly service to offer unto God the spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, both with our lips and by our obedient lives. In fact, Getting back to our passage for today, Peter in this very epistle speaks of our priesthood as believers. If you skip ahead to chapter 2 and look at verses 4 and 5 in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, it says, As you come to him, that's Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? To be a holy priesthood. Peter's, Peter's addressing believers in general. He's not addressing ministers or elders. He's addressing all of God's people. We are being built up not only as a spiritual house or temple, but a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
And that's what we do, by the way, when we sing praises to God and offer our prayers to God. We are offering to God sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And the reason that we can do that and have those sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving accepted by God is because we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. But, and there's many other things that could be uh, spoken of in terms of the significance of the sprinkling of blood. But the final point I want to make here under this second point is that the sprinkling of blood confirms the covenant between God and his people. According to Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, which I read to you earlier in the service, Moses confirmed the covenant between God and his people by doing something rather strange, by sprinkling them with the blood of the covenant. By, you know, if you were standing around Moses on that occasion, Moses would throw some blood on you. And that would be a sign of the confirmation of the covenant between God and his people. Likewise, think about our Lord Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper. When our Lord instituted the Holy Supper, he indicated that his shed blood would ratify and confirm the new covenant. For example, consider our Lord's uh, language in Matthew 26, verse 28. Matthew 26, verse 28, which is Matthew's account of our Lord's institution of the Holy Supper. I'm going to start with uh, verse 27. It says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my what? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, God's elect are confirmed as the beneficiaries of the covenant of grace. And by the benefits of Christ's sprinkled blood, which we receive through our faith in Him, we receive all of the saving benefits of that covenant of grace. Through the sprinkling of Christ's blood, we receive all of the blessings of the new covenant. Praise be to our faithful covenant God for His wonderful mercies to us in Christ our Savior. So we've considered why it was that Christ needed to shed His blood. We've considered, uh, as we've looked at various Scripture passages, the, the significance of the sprinkling of blood. But finally, let us consider the blessings of Christ's sprinkled blood. The blessings of Christ's sprinkled blood. There's many things, many blessings that come to us because we are Uh, sprinkled with the blood of Christ because we are cleansed through the blood of Christ. And let me just mention a few. First of all, believer, through the blood of Christ, your sin has been atoned for and thus your sins have been forgiven. Now, we are tempted to think, well, yeah, that's the message that unbelievers need to hear. They need to hear that they are to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and that certainly is true. Unbelievers need to hear the good news so that uh, those among them that are of God's elect may be, may be drawn to Christ and may come to trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. But we Christians, we too need to hear the good news, not just once. We need to hear it over and over and over again because each and every one of us has a little Pharisee, a little Judaizer in our souls saying, well, I can fix this. I can do it myself. I can pick myself up by my bootstraps. Or I can help Jesus save me. I'm not completely helpless. I can do something, right? 
then that little pride, that little proud Pharisee in us starts to rise up. Friends, nothing but the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from our sins. The good news is that through the blood of Christ, through His atoning sacrifice on the cross, your sin and mine has been atoned for and thus through faith in Christ, God-given faith in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. Get it through your thick skull, Christian. Your sins are forgiven. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Our Lord's death on the cross was a penal substitutionary atonement for sin. What that means is that He took the penalty that we deserve. He suffered in our place, in our stead. His atonement on the cross purchased the gift of saving faith for you and for me. And through that faith, that God-given faith, you and I have received the full benefits of His precious shed blood. Yes, it is true. Jesus even died for your sins of unbelief and your rejection of Him when you were still in an unsaved condition. I've heard some suggest that, well, Jesus died for every sin except the sin of unbelief. Well, if that's the case, I'm I'm hopeless because I still struggle with unbelief. And either I can remember, I don't know about you folks, some of you have been raised in faithful covenant homes and you can never remember a time when you didn't repent and believe. Praise God for that if that's your testimony. But for some of us, we can remember a time when we were still in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. We can still remember a time when we did not know or trust in the Lord, when we were unbelieving and unrepentant. But Jesus died even for that unbelief and impenitence. Oh, what marvelous, superabounding grace. Another blessing of Christ's sprinkled blood. You, believer, have been consecrated, set apart to belong to Christ forever. Yes, you've been set apart to serve but you've also been set apart to be His beloved, blood-bought child, both for time and for eternity. You are His now. You are His forever. And because atonement and forgiveness have been provided for you through the sprinkling of Christ's blood, you can know the blessing of a clear conscience. Oh, how many walk around with a load of guilt on their consciences. If skeletons in their closet from the past, things that they look back on their lives and they say, I, I'm just so ashamed that I behaved that way or that I said this thing or that I, you know, I sinned against the Lord at that, on that occasion in that way. How many walk with a load of guilt on their consciences? How many are tormented by an accusing conscience? Few things are more painful subjectively speaking, than an accusing, guilty conscience. The Bible indicates that the wicked in hell will not only suffer in their uh, physical bodies the indescribable torments in their resurrected bodies, but subjectively and internally, they will also suffer the throbbing pangs of an accusing conscience which will never be relieved. It will be like the worm that never dies. An accusing conscience can rob you of peace, can strip away the comfort that the gospel promises are intended to bestow upon believers, 
And it can even lead to the kind of mental anguish that is encountered by the psychological profession. It can even lead to suicide. But friends, there is an antidote to the poison of a guilty conscience. And that antidote is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The only lasting solution to a guilty, accusing conscience is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I know I read this earlier in the service, but let me read two, uh, pass, uh, two verses as we close our time in the Word this evening. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. The author of Hebrews writes, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Dear listener, do you enjoy a clear conscience? Or is your conscience still plagued by guilt because of past sins? Has your conscience been sprinkled by the blood of Christ? You say, well, you know, I'm still struggling with sin. So I still have a guilty conscience. His mercies are new every morning. His covenant faithfulness remains. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. That's not an excuse to be faithless. It's not an excuse to give ourselves over to antinomianism or anything like that. But brothers and sisters in Christ, God knows, God your Heavenly Father, He knows that you failed in the past. He knows you're going to fail tomorrow and next week and the rest of your life. But He still loves you. And the blood of Jesus was shed to cleanse you, not only from those past sins, not only from your present struggles, but even from those future sins. So rest upon Christ. Take His yoke upon you. Learn from Him. Remember, Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. He will not crush the wounded. He will not snuff out uh, the smoldering wick. He is compassionate. He is merciful. Trust in Him. May God bless you and me as we are sprinkled in our consciences by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You that You loved us to such an extent that You gave Your Son Jesus to take the curse upon Himself, to take our curse upon Himself that we might receive your blessings of grace. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would sprinkle our consciences clean by the blood of Christ, that you would renew us by your Spirit, that we might live lives confident in Christ and show forth gratitude by our obedience to you. We pray these things, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Let's respond to what we've heard this evening by rising and we'll sing as our closing hymn, Nothing But the Blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 278. 278.